Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Morning Report podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Dewey. I'm an assistant professor of neurology and associate program director at the Yale School of Medicine. Today, we're joined by Dr. Larry Hirsch, who is a professor of neurology and the chief of epilepsy and EEG at the Yale School of Medicine. Joining us also is Dr. Lindsay McAlpine, a fan favorite and PGY3 resident in our program, and a new guest, Dr. John Picard, who's one of our PGY4s and another current education chief. So uh, Dr. McAlpine, I think you have the case today and I'll let you take it away. Yes, so today we have a 33-year-old veteran coming in. He has a history of PTSD and lower back pain. He's a veteran of the Air Force and he had multiple deployments to Afghanistan for at least six months at a time. And so he's coming in with these episodes of how to describe them. So he, he has these blanking out syncope type events. Okay. Um, can you tell me a bit more about how the patient himself described these events? So he's had a couple of them since 2016. And at the time, he blanked out so much that he, he doesn't remember what happened. He was alone, but he fell 12 feet off a wall. But he says the most recent event was in October of 2019. He was driving with his family in the car, his wife, um, and they were trying to find a place to park. And he felt this feeling of like anger and panic and he didn't want to go in. And so he was just trying to find somewhere to park so they could go in. He didn't want to be around people. And he felt, he felt very sweaty and hot and uncomfortable. And then his wife said that his eyes were open, but he was blank, unresponsive for a minute. Was he still driving at the time? No, he was parked. into park cars? Oh, he was already parked. No, he, he was already parked. He, he was feeling like unwell and panicked and then parked. Okay. And does, does he describe that kind of panicky, anxious feeling before the other spells, or is that the only one where that happened? Um, he has them, he has the panicky feeling all the time. So he has episodes of that every day. Uh, he has a history of PTSD in uh, Afghanistan. He had a really severe combat accident. So he was like in a helicopter and it was landing and then they got shot at and he fell out of the helicopter and hit his head and lost consciousness. And um, there was a blast that caused that. So there was also, so in addition to falling out of the helicopter, he had a blast injury. Certainly has some risk factors for epilepsy from a traumatic brain injury standpoint. Correct. Um, how severe those are is going to be hard to tell. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to head trauma, what types of head injuries are most clearly associated with a risk of epilepsy? Is every concussion associated with a chance of developing epilepsy? So I think we tend to screen people for uh, head injuries or head traumas that require some means of hospitalization usually. I mean, there's uh, a lot of people that call, you know, brain injuries concussions, um, but they may never have had loss of consciousness, uh, you know, or it's very vague and they never required hospitalization. They maybe were just watched at home for symptoms and did okay. Um, so the highest risk I would think would come with people that, you know, require hospitalization after a severe TBI that may lead to um, obviously, if there's any intraparenchymal hemorrhage or even, um, you know, subdural uh, hemorrhage that could cause compression on the cortex, 
um, or you know if there's clear evidence for diffuse axonal injury that would uh, lead them with you know a predilection for seizures, those would definitely be the higher risk patients. Um, so usually clear loss of consciousness, um, you know a prolonged period of post-concussive symptom uh, symptomatology, and then usually a hospital stay uh, would be higher risk. Right. So right, the, uh, it's basically moderate to severe head trauma is where you'll have a really significant increased risk. So um, things that have been clearly proven are any form of intracranial bleeding, all the ones you mentioned, but really any of them. Um, skull fracture has also been a significant one and loss of consciousness for at least 30 minutes uh, or amnesia for at least 30 minutes. So your typical concussion that's more sports related kind of thing doesn't fall into those categories. There are some long-term epidemiologic studies that show even those mild head traumas may have a very small but measurable increased risk of seizures. But in general, I don't count those as significant risks. So it's just the moderate to severe ones. Um, so uh, this gentleman, hard to say how, you know, how long he had lost consciousness, but it sounds like he's had multiple forms of head traumas and a combination of a fall and blast at the same time. I don't think you'll find any literature on that. So we'll have to assume he has at least potential significant head trauma. He's had uh, at least three head traumas with loss of consciousness. Okay. Um, so and how many of these spells has he had over, over the years? Is it just a handful or having them regularly? So initially, his first one was in 2016, and then it recurred in 2019. It started again in October with this car episode. Um, and ever since that episode, uh, he has had them every other day. Um, so he was able to tell me that the last time he had the episode was at 2 p.m. the previous day. Um, he said every time they're the same and he can feel them coming on and he sits down, but he, you know, he logs them, but he can't figure out any trigger. His primary care initially sent him to cardiology and he got a full cardiac workup, um, for cardiogenic syncope, which was all negative. And so then he came to our clinic. Okay. So what do you, what do you think are, we'll give you two, you get to pick two diagnoses. What are the top two most likely diagnoses for this gentleman's spell? Taking the uh, history that Lindsay gave us, I mean, normally when we deal with these episodes of sort of acute loss of consciousness, oftentimes neurology is involved, but it's very important to consider non-neurologic causes. So, you know, Lindsay did mention that there, it sounds like there was a very extensive cardiac workup, um, but usually sort of number one on the list tends to be something cardiogenic or it very well may be something cardiogenic. So you want to consider arrhythmias. Um, you want to consider uh, the possibility for um, sort of stepping out of cardiogenic causes orthostasis. So people can have um, postural hypotension that lead to syncope. Um, you know, usually the sort of loss of consciousness, you know, if he has loss of tone with it, it could represent an atonic seizure, but it, you know, that, that tends to be more commonly seen in people that have defined epilepsy syndromes like Lennox Gustaux and things like that. Um, but he may have a little bit of an atypical presentation given that he has prior TBI. Um, so I think that would probably be, I think, the differential for him, although it sounds like he's had some of those things uh, worked up already. I would also add panic attacks and 
uh, non-epileptic spells, given his history. You're, you're referring to psychogenic non-epileptic spells. Yes. I get it, yes. Um, so yeah, I completely agree. Cardiac is the most important one to address first. It sounds like that's largely been addressed and really frequent stereotype ones like this are it's usually pretty easy to recognize a cardiac cause of that. Um, and a lot of these sounds like he's just staring spells with eyes open rather than collapse. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So that's pretty unlikely to be cardiac. I mean, cardiac, you get syncope, usually you collapse, eyes closed, uh, and then fairly rapid recovery. So it doesn't sound like that. This sounds more like spells of unresponsiveness and staring, um, but not loss of tone and uh, collapse. So I think that makes cardiac much less likely, especially given that he, he had a workup for that as well. Um, so that, that leaves epileptic seizures and psychogenic spells as the top two uh, by far. So can you just call these panic attacks? What, what feature does he have that kind of takes it out of the panic attack world? No, they didn't spark me as panic attacks because they were stereotyped every time and had no clear trigger. Usually panic attacks are triggered by a stimulus um, and you don't typically lose consciousness uh, right. and blank exactly. out. Exactly. That's the main feature. Once you're getting yeah. to unresponsive and staring, that, that's, if they're really unresponsive, um, you have to assume there's something more than just a panic attack. You should have retained awareness and memory of the event with a panic attack. Having said that, a lot of things that have been diagnosed as panic attacks turn out to be epileptic seizures. That's not, not a rare misdiagnosis because the aura of epileptic seizures can be just like a panic attack. You can get just sudden fear and anxiety. But uh, Lindsay, as you said, the, the trigger is a big difference there. It's usually a trigger for a panic attack where there's not for an epileptic version of that. All right, so any other, uh, anything else you want to tell us about these spells? I mean, do they always happen standing up? I mean, John brought up the orthostasis and... No, nope, he, was, he was seated in the car when the first one happened, and then there's no pattern otherwise. So they can happen when he's lying down, they can happen when he's sedi- seated, and they, they sometimes are preceded by deja vu. Um, and he also reports feelings mm-hmm. of like rising panic and also anger as well. So emotional lability prior to them. And sometimes when he has an unwitnessed episode, he'll know that it happened because he loses time and has a feeling of what am I doing here afterwards? So he's slightly confused afterwards and disoriented. Um, And, you know, he, he works in manufacturing. So it's uh, pretty precarious that he's having these. And he felt kind of like he was going crazy um, because he had no control over what was happening. Okay. And uh, do you have any more description of how he recovers from these? Is it over a few seconds, a few minutes, or he has some degree of confusion at least? Minutes. Minutes. Okay. Yeah. Well, you just added a lot of features that are much more epilepsy sounding. Yes. Right? <laughs> Deja vu, experiential phenomena, uh, the rising epigastric sensation, and then postictal confusion. So all those are certainly going to point you much more towards epileptic now. That's pretty classic medial temporal types of auras there. All right. So what do you want to do with this gentleman? So we 
debated about what to do. Uh, we definitely were going to get an EEG. We're definitely going to get an epilepsy protocol MRI. And the question was, how convinced were we, are we going to start him on an anti-epileptic right from the bat? And we talked about it and we're pretty convinced that he was having temporal lobe seizures, probably due to his previous significant TBI. Uh, and so we actually started him on VINPAT. Okay. Would any blood tests help you in telling whether this was a seizure or not, if he comes into the emergency with one of these spells? So there's definitely um, a few laboratory assessments that you can obtain. A lot of it depends a little bit on the timing. So, um, you know, we can check things like prolactin uh, when people first present. Um, there has been some uh, literature, I guess, exploring uh, procalcitonin as a possibility as well. Um, and then uh, we check things like lactic acid, CK, which in his case may not be as helpful, uh, just because it doesn't sound like he actually had, uh, you know, a tonic-clonic um, activity in his seizures. So likely those would be normal. Yeah, so that's, that's the main point here. A, a lot of those things are useful for telling a convulsion, an epileptic convulsion from some other type of convulsion, but not so much for a focal impaired awareness seizure, what we used to call complex partial seizures, the term now is focal impaired awareness. Um, so no, none of those are really going to be reliably abnormal. But you're right, if it was a convulsive spell, um, then yeah, prolactin within 30 minutes, ammonia within many hours, probably 8 to 12 hours, or a CK done the next day, um, those can definitely help tell. Um, and usually you'll see an acute metabolic, metabolic acidosis with a high lactate and in the emergency room with that first blood draw and it rapidly clears by the time you can repeat it. Again, that's all for epileptic convulsions. So that's not the case here. And those will help you differentiate from a psychogenic convulsion, but not so much from syncope because some of those things can be abnormal with syncope as well. Um, all right. So uh, did he... Did he get a, at least a CAT scan or something at the initial evaluation? Or this is, is this somebody you saw in clinic or in the hospital? Clinic. Clinic, okay. So you started VIMPAT. Uh, I think that's reasonable. Will that affect your EEG result? No. <laughs> Probably not. It depends. I, I don't know if there's good data on VIMPAT or leucosamide. Uh, some of the drugs that will hide epileptiform discharges, like valproate, levetiracetam, all the benzos, including clobazam, um, those will make your yield a little lower. Um, but things like carbamazepine, phenytoin, the, the, most of the sodium channel blockers do not. So I think probably leucosamide, which is a form of a sodium channel blocker, probably will not have a major effect on the EEG. So it's okay to start it, but if you're don't start it. You definitely want to get the EEG and the imaging quickly. You don't want to leave something like this with untreated seizures for a while. Um, do we have results available for MRI or EEG? We have an EEG, but not an MRI. Uh, they had initially difficulty scheduling it, and then COVID happened. Uh, so he has not gotten his MRI yet, unfortunately. But his okay. EEG showed... Um, left temporal lateralized rhythmic delta activity during sleep. Ah. No. So is that, is that uh, an epileptiform finding? 
that's relevant to his risk for future seizures? Should we ask Dr. Picard this one? Yes, that would be in uh, concern. So, you know, LERDA or lateralized rhythmic delta activity is a concerning epileptiform finding on an EEG, um, as opposed to, you know, GERDA or generalized discharges, which we do see more often in people that are hospitalized and may have toxic metabolic issues or things of that nature. Um, that's uh, the lateralized nature of it would make it epileptiform. And I wouldn't be surprised if on imaging, you know, if we were able to obtain that, there may be some indication that he has some injury to that temporal lobe given his prior history. And it would be interesting even to have a dry head CT, which can be logistically a little easier. You know, if he did have a significant uh, traumatic injury, you may even see an area of subtle encephalomalacia uh, there in the temporal lobe. Yes, absolutely. So uh, lateralized rhythmic delta activity uh, in the critical care world, that's termed LERDA or LRDA. In the uh, outpatient epilepsy world, that's usually, in this case, referred to as TERDA for temporal intermittent rhythmic delta activity. It just means rhythmic delta in the temporal lobe, just a, a subset of LERDA. Uh, but that, yeah, those are highly associated with seizures. Uh, they mean virtually the same as actually seeing periodic discharges. So it's more highly seizure-related than just seeing sporadic epileptiform discharges. So yeah, this that's a pretty clear that this gentleman is highly predisposed to seizures. So yeah, I would definitely want to treat him. Yeah, and it's a good example of things like anxiety and stress causing spells or being ubiquitous, those happen all the time and that's going to be related to the diagnosis and uh, having PTSD is certainly not protective against also developing epilepsy. So right. you know, the initial thought was that this was going to be psychogenic. Uh, do you have any follow-up yet doing on the Actually, I have a, a clinic visit or a televisit scheduled with him in the next week. So I'm going to find out uh, how much the VIMPAD is helping his spells. So if, if the frequency of the seizures has, has gone down, um, he has not been driving. His, uh, his partner was driving him everywhere. Yeah. What's our most commonly prescribed initial drug for people with new onset? Focal seizure. Days it was, but yeah, levetiracetam by by far nowadays. Uh, so why is it that you guys did not wisely did not give it to this gentleman? Because of his history of mood lability and PTSD. Right. Absolutely. For people who that that's the the main side effect from levetiracetam is behavioral or psychiatric, and uh, yeah, I would definitely avoid it in someone like this. We have lots of anti-seizure medications that help those things um, and that's our second most common drug for in the outpatient world is lamotrigine and that actually is very good for all that so that would have been a perfectly good option for this gentleman as well although Vimpai you can get on board faster which is probably why that was chosen that was a, a perfectly fine choice the main downside to it I guess is the BID dosing that's still necessary mm -hmm. Um, as long as he can remain compliant with that, I think it's a good choice. Um, and you should check an EKG and make sure his PR interval mm -hmm. is okay on it. But I don't think he has a lot of risk factors in that regard. No, he had just had an EKG too for his cardiac workup. So your next choice for an AED would be Lamotrigine? For this gentleman, yeah, I think it, mm -hmm. it would be. 
unless you give me something else, if he has frequent migraines and he's overweight, I might choose the pyramid, for example. <laughs> that's kind of how we pick because they're all about equally efficacious for, for focal epilepsy like this. Would you consider Depakote, Dr. Hirsch, for mood stabilization as well? Um, Valproate's not, not bad for, um, yes, it's good as a mood stabilizer for somebody who has bipolar or mania. That's a very good choice. Um, not quite as well tolerated overall compared to lamotrigine and levotrastin in general. So we tend to go to that later. But I wouldn't say it's wrong. It's just not usually one of our top two or three. Um, I guess I'd throw oxcarbazepine is pretty commonly used now for someone like this as well. It's perfectly fine, and there's extended release forms of that. Um, so there's lots of good. There's lots of reasonable options. Great. Well, thank you, everybody. That was a great case. Just to review a couple of uh, sort of key pearls. So the historical features that raise the risk of a seizure after a head injury are any kind of intracranial bleeding. Uh, the history of a skull fracture associated with the injury, or loss of consciousness or amnesia for greater than 30 minutes. Uh, a good approach to evaluating a spell is to think about uh, before, during, and after. So was there a prodrome and what was it? Are there any classic pre-seizure auras like a rising feeling in the gut uh, or deja vu? Uh, what happens during the seizure? In this case, I think it was helpful to note that the patient's eyes remained open and he did not actually lose tone, as you might expect from syncope, but also did not have convulsions. And so that was maybe not quite as helpful, but I think definitely important. Uh, and then after, what was he like? And in this uh, patient's case, he did have some post-ictal confusion as opposed to, say, a syncopal episode when patients often return very quickly to their baseline uh, mental status. Uh, and lastly, I think it's important to remember that while levetiracetam is an easy drug to reach for, in patients with a psychiatric history, it may not be the best choice. Uh, and in this case, we chose uh, lacosamide, uh, remembering that it's important to monitor the PR interval and at least to check it beforehand before starting this medication. So thank you, Dr. Hirsch, for joining us. Thanks, Dr. McAlpine and Dr. Picard, as always, and we'll see you for the next episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody.